0: Chapter 6. When I drove to New York next, it was in a different frame of mind. I was no longer a man with a simple mission of helping seven boys involved in a murder trial. But if I'm supposed to be doing something else too, I said to myself, I wish I could get a clear picture of the task. There was a vision that lay just outside my grasp like a half-remembered dream. I only knew that it had to do with some specific help that I was supposed to give boys like Lewis and his friends. In the meantime, I did not want to pass up a single opportunity to get in touch with Louis's gang. Sentence had been passed. Four of the boys were to be sent to prison, including Louis himself. Three, three were to be released of these three boys. One was to be sent to a special home for psychiatric care. One, I learned, was to be rushed out of the city by his parents, and the last was returning home. I decided to try to get in touch with him. When I arrived at the address on 125th Street, a new name was in the card holder in the door. I knocked anyhow and was not really surprised when the boy's mother answered the door. She remembered me from the time I had been there before and seemed glad to see me. Come in, she said. You see how we have changed our name. All the time we were getting angry people at the door. Once they write on the wall, get your boy out of town or get him killed. In the living room of their four-room apartment, newspapers were stacked several feet high on a chair. On the couch, on the coffee table, they all contained stories of the trial. You have no idea, Reverend Wilkerson, what it is like to open your paper each day and see the pictures of your boy. Now... How he is on trial for a murder. Neighbors brought most of these papers here, and then they stayed to complain. To my husband, they gave other papers, too, at his work. We went into the kitchen, which smelled wonderfully of Spanish fried food, and there we talked about plans for the future. Are you going to try to stay here? I asked. We would like to, but it is hard to leave because of my husband's job. But your son is in danger here. Yes. Would you like to send him to live with my family for a while in Pennsylvania? He would be welcome. "'No,' said this poor woman, turning her food. "'No, when my boy comes home from that jail, "'we will probably send him away from here, "'but it will be with his own people. "'No one will see him. "'He will be like one who has never lived.' "'When I left her, her ha, When I left her half an hour later, "'I turned to say goodbye at the door "'and saw the writings she had mentioned, "'scrawled in yellow chalk on the wall. "'Someone had tried to rub it out, "'but you could still read. "'Or get him killed.' So once again, I was prevented from making contact with the boys in Louis's gang. Perhaps I should just assume that there was a purpose in these closed doors. Perhaps it lay in the emerging dream that was haunting me. Unlikely as it seemed, unprepared and even unwilling as I was, I was beginning to face the possibility that somewhere along these streets I would inevitably find what the Quakers call my bundle of responsibility. Lord, I said again as I left the 125th Street area and headed back toward my car, if you have work for me in this place... "'Teach me what it is.' "'This was the beginning of a four-month-long walk "'through the streets of New York. "'During the months of March, April, May, and June of 1958, "'I drove to the city once every week, "'using my day off for the trip. "'I would rise early and make the eight-hour drive, "'arriving in New York in the early afternoon. "'Then, until deep into the night, "'I roamed the streets of the city, "'driving home in early morning. "'These were not idle explorations. "'The feeling of being guided by a purpose "'other than my own never left me.' though the nature of it was more mysterious than ever. I knew of no other way to respond than to return to the city again and again, holding myself open, waiting always for the direction to become clear. I remember so clearly the first night of this four-month walk. Maria, before I left her in the dank basement cell, had told me that one of the roughest, most brutal neighborhoods in all New York was the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. Preacher, said Maria, if you want to see New York at its worst, you just drive across the Brooklyn Bridge and open your eyes. Did I really want to see New York at its worst? I wasn't so sure. Yep. From just such a womb were born the seven defendants in the farmer trial. If I were ever going to raise my sights, as grandfather suggested, perhaps I would first have to lower my eyes. So I drove downtown along Broadway, past Times Square, past the Martinique where Miles and I had stayed, and on down to the Brooklyn Bridge. On the other side, I got directions to the Bedford-Stuyvesant section from a police officer. So it was that I drove for the first time into the heart of an area that is supposed to have more murderers per square foot of land than any place on earth. How little I realized as I timidly steered my car along its streets that they would someday be as familiar to me as the friendly streets of Phillipsburg. Bedford Stuyvesant was once the home of responsible middle-class families who lived in trim three-story houses with gardens in the rear. It was now an African-American and Puerto Rican ghetto. It was a blistering cold March night when I pulled into the area— "'I had to drive around many blocks before I could find a place to park "'because the city was slow clearing the streets through here "'and most of the cars were frozen to the curb between grey mounds of snow. "'Walking was a hazardous progress through ankle-deep slush "'and over slippery piles of refuse. "'Alone, I wandered up and down the streets, "'watching and listening and touching life "'at a level that I, from the safety of my mountains, "'simply had not known existed.'" "'A drunk lay on the icy sidewalk. "'When I stooped to help him, he cursed me. "'He told a policeman at the corner about the sick man, and the officer shrugged his shoulders and said he'd look into it. "'But when I turned to look back, a block away, "'the policeman was still standing idly on the corner, swinging his nightstick. Two girls, silhouetted against an open door behind them, chirped to me. "'Hey there, big boy. You looking for company?' "'Across the street, a group of teenagers were hanging around a candy store. "'They wore leather jackets with a curious insignia stenciled on the back. "'I wanted to talk to them, but I hesitated.' Would they listen to me? Would they laugh at me? Push me around? In the end, I didn't cross the street, not that night. I just walked some more past bars and overflowing garbage cans, past storefront churches and police stations, and on into an immense housing project with broken windows and broken lights and a broken keep off the grass sign buried in the sooty snow. On the way back to my car, I heard what sounded to me like three quick shots. Then I thought that I must have been mistaken because no one in the busy street seemed excited or even interested. Within minutes, a police car roared by, sirens screaming to pull nose forward into the curb with its lights flashing red. Only six people stopped to watch as they brought a man out of a rooming house with his arm hanging limply at his side, dripping blood. It took more than a shot in the shoulder to draw a crowd in Bedford's Stuyvesant. I went back to my car, and after hanging an old shirt in the window as a symbol of privacy, I lay down, pulled a car rug over me, and finally went to sleep. I wouldn't do that today. I know better. It isn't so much the danger of adult thugs or even teenagers... It's the little people. These are the eight, nine, and ten-year-olds who travel on the periphery of the teenage gangs. These little ones are truly dangerous, because they cultivate violence for its own sake. They have the knives and guns of their older heroes, and they think they achieve manliness by using them. It's the little people I'd be afraid of today if I had to sleep in a car on the streets. But in the morning I woke up safe. Was it my very innocence that kept me? Or was it the words from the 91st Psalm that I said over and over again as I fell asleep? Bit by bit, during this four-month walk, I got to know the streets. Maria and Angelo were very hopeful in this. I had kept in close touch with Angelo after our first encounter on the stairs of Louis Alvarez's apartment house. Angelo, I said to him one day as we were walking down a Harlem street together, what would you say was the greatest problem boys have in this city? "'Lonesomeness,' said Angelo quickly. "'It was a strange answer. "'Lonesomeness in a city of eight million people, "'but Angelo said the feeling came because nobody loved you, "'and that all of his friends in the gangs "'were basically very lonely boys. "'The more I came to know New York, "'the more I grew certain that Angelo was right. "'Before I became personally involved "'with the problems of these boys, "'I had no real idea what a teenage street gang was. "'We had gangs of a sort when I was growing up in Pittsburgh. "'The kids used to get together after school "'to build a clubhouse in the vacant lot. What went on inside these clubhouses varied somewhat, depending on the age and personality of the kids. But the activity never ranged far from simple talk. Talk about girls, talk about automobiles, talk about sports, talk about parents. I suppose it is a basic to childhood to want to gang together to explore the adult world out of adult earshot. There are gangs like this in New York, too. Simple social congregations that never move beyond that function. But there's another kind of teenage gang in New York that is something else again. This is the fighting gang. The bopping or jitterbugging gang, these boys are never far from violence. I know of one instance when a I took two months to plan. But I know of another case when at two o'clock in the afternoon, ten boys were standing around a street corner drinking pop. And at four o'clock that same afternoon, one of the boys was dead, two others in the hospital. A major war between rival gangs had flared up, raged, and ended in the interval. There are also, I discovered, various kinds of specialty gangs in the city. In addition to the social gangs and the fighting gangs, there are homosexual gangs, lesbian gangs, and sadist gangs. As I got to know more boys personally, I learned about the wild parties these kids throw in empty apartments after school. Some, for instance, are parties where a group of kids gather together to pull the legs off a cat. Some are pure sex parties. Often, the boys told me, they would gather in a dark corner of a park and circle around a couple practicing mutual masturbation while the couple went through the sexual act on the ground. Feeding this side of teenage gang life is a flood of pornography. Many of the boys showed me samples extracted from hidden pockets in their wallets. This is not the girly picture that is sold on the street corner. These are drawings and photographs of unnatural acts between boys and girls, of acts with animals. Children told me that they sometimes spend their afternoons in a basement clubhouse using these pictures as guides. Grim as fighting and promiscuity and unnaturalness are to encounter among teenagers... There is one depravity that surpasses them all. Dope addiction. I quickly reached the point where I myself could spot peddlers of marijuana around the schoolyards. They were bold and pushy. They talked with freedom about their trade and told me how to try smoking pot myself. If I was interested in knowing what it was all about. When I showed one man a newspaper picture of a boy doubled up in pain on a hospital bed in the throes of withdrawal, he laughed at me. Don't worry, he said. That guy was on heroin. A little marijuana won't hurt you at all. It ain't much different than a cigarette. Have one. It won't hurt you? Marijuana isn't addicting by itself, but it quickly leads to the use of heroin, which is one of the most cruelly addicting drugs known to man. Once, during my long walk, there was a panic, as the users say, a time when drugs were in scarce supply because of a major arrest of smugglers. I was exploring through the Bedford Story of Essence section during this time. As I walked down one street, I heard a high, piercing scream. No one paid the slightest attention. The screaming went on and on and on. That sounds like someone in pain, I said to a woman who was resting her arms on a first-floor window sill in the same building. She lifted her head, listened a minute, and shrugged her shoulders. Third floor, she said. It's terrible. He's 20 years old. It's heroin. He's really hooked and can't get a fix. You know what it is? Since he was in diapers, can't... Can't we do something to help him? What? For instance, death is what would help him now. Can't we just take him to the hospital? The woman just looked at me. Mister, she said after a while, you're new round here, aren't you? Yes. You try to get a hooked boy into one of these hospitals and see where you get. How those words would come back to me in the months to come. There is only one public facility in all of New York, Riverside Hospital, where an addicted boy can get help. Facilities there are so overtaxed that admission is slower or impossible. If a boy can't get in at Riverside. He can make application to the only other public hospital in the entire United States where a New York City addict can be admitted. A forbidding-looking federal institution in Lexington, Kentucky, which specializes in the problem. Fighting sex, drug addiction, these were dramatic manifestations of the needs of New York's teenage gang members. But as Angelo said, they were just the outward symbols of a deep inner need loneliness. A hunger for some kind of significance in life. The saddest thing I found on this long walk was how pathetically low these boys' sights were. I listened to some of them describe their hopes. Hopes? Can you really call it a hope when a boy's goal in life is to get a new hat? One with a narrow brim. A hat is a symbol to these boys. More than once I've seen a youngster shivering in the street because he doesn't own a coat. But on his head will be a $25 alpine hat with a jaunty feather. Or perhaps they'd like to go on a trip across the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan for instance that would be an adventure some day somehow these boys were pitifully isolated each in his own small turf i met dozens of brooklyn youngsters who had never been across the brooklyn bridge for fear of the enemy gangs in manhattan and the bronx Gradually, from all the visits, a pattern emerged. It was a pattern of need, starting with loneliness and extending through the gang wars, the sex parties, the dope addiction, and ending in an early and ignominious grave. To check my own impressions, I visited police stations, talked with social workers and parole officers, and spent many hours in the public library. In the end, my total impression of the problems of New York teenagers was so staggering that I almost quit. And it was at that moment that the Holy Spirit stepped in to help This time, he did not come to my aid in any dramatic way. He simply gave me an idea. He clarified the vision that had been so like a dimly recalled dream. I was driving back to Phillipsburg, watching the odometer turn around and around, keeping pace with the turnpike mile markers as they crept past. Suddenly, I was asking myself, Suppose you were to be granted a wish for these kids. What would be the one best thing you could hope for? And I knew my answer, that they could begin life all over again, with the fresh and innocent personalities of newborn children. And more, that this time, as they were growing up, they could be surrounded by love, instead of by hate and fear. But of course, this was impossible. How could people already in their teens erase all that had gone before? And how could a new environment be made for them? Is this a dream you have put into my heart, Lord? Or am I just weaving a fantasy for myself? They've got to start over again, and they've got to be surrounded by love. The idea came to mind as a complete thought as clearly as the first order to go to New York. And along with it came into my mind the picture of a house where these new kids could come, a really nice house all their own, where they would be welcomed, welcomed and loved. They could live in their house any time they wanted to. The door would always be open. There would always be lots and lots of beds and clothes to wear and a great big kitchen. Oh, Lord, I said aloud, what a wonderful dream this is. "'But it would take a miracle, a series of miracles such as I've never seen!'